Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and on this week's episode we're going to be chatting with comic book superstar Ryan Hughes about his logo design and type design work. Before we get into the interview, I do want to give a big shout out to a sponsor of this podcast, FreshBooks. Now, FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software that makes it really easy to create and send professional looking invoices in seconds. To try it out for yourself with a free unrestricted 30 day trial, all you need to do is visit freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter logo geek in the how did you hear about us section this week i'm really excited to be interviewing ryan hughes a british graphic designer writer and comic book artist having a slight obsession with logo design books one day a few months back i was browsing amazon and i came across a book uh, that was available for pre-order. Now, this book was called Logo A Go Go, and it covers branding, pop culture, uh, logos, and design for comics, music, toys, and more. Now, this was a book by Ryan, and uh, having seen the book uh, that was covered in um, logos from like Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I was immediately excited. Uh, I mean, we're talking about logos and nerd stuff all together in one. I, I absolutely love this stuff. And uh, hopefully, if you're listening to this, you'll also be interested in both of those things too. Now, I need to be honest, at that time, I'd not actually heard of Ryan. Um, but spending a short amount of time uh, browsing the internet, it became uh, very clear that Ryan was somewhat of a legend. He's designed logos for DC and Marvel, and these logos have included things like Batman and Robin, Batgirl, the X-Men, Captain America, Wolverine, the Spirit, the Invisibles, the list goes on. It was also really cool to find out that he designed a logo for one of my favourite shops too, Forbidden Planet. Now we talk about so much in this episode, so I want to get straight into this. Here's Ryan Hughes, where we start the discussion talking about his beginnings as a designer and how he got involved in logo design and type design for the comic book industry. The involvement with comics has always been there in parallel to the design work. And I think one of the sort of threads of my work is that I've always worked as a typographer, um, illustrator and comic strip artist and writer on those subjects and other related things always in parallel. So they kind of inform each other. Um, so I started off many years ago. I, I had a graphic novel published by a um, Belgian publisher called Magic Strip, uh, who, were, who were publishing people like Yves Chalon and Serge Clerc in a very nice little um, hardback format called Atomium 58. And that led on to working at 2000 AD with um, Grant Morrison on uh, Dare. Actually, it wasn't 2000 AD. It was a companion comic called Revolver. And because I was probably one of the only people who comic publishers knew who was a graphic designer... I ended up by being the graphic designer of choice for a lot of a lot of these um, magazines and comics, um, and that's just how it's continued, uh, sort of through the friends that I have in the industry who will ask me to get involved in various things. 
and when a lot of the English and uh, writers and artists began working for DC primarily, but also for Marvel, um, I got asked to get involved with their projects then. And so that's how it's kind of grown from there, really. It's been very so organic. Would you say that it's um, simply because you've been working on that particular niche area that's that you become known for it that that's basically the reason why people keep coming to you because as far as they're concerned you're the best person to go to am i right <laughs> well i would i would hope that would be the case i don't think um there are not actually that many designers working in comics who actually love comics rather than see it as something that's part of a, a i mean you get a lot of designers who will work in comics who will have no idea what's appropriate for comics. And then you get graphic designers who are so uh, marinated in comics that all they can do is design comics that look like old comics. So the trick is to sort of be aware of the history of comics, but also not bound by it. So you've got to import things from from outside of that uh, and because I always did a lot of work for the music industry or for advertising or mainstream book publishing uh, I always try to sort of bring something to bear that wasn't what you might expect for comics and this was you, you're talking about probably the mid 80s now when I was starting out in this and nowadays the design of comics the look of comics is so much more um broad and inventive and, and there's so much beautiful stuff being designed now that um i kind of forget how hidebound by convention it used to be back in the day mm-hmm. i'm really curious um to talk through your logo design process because uh within this podcast so far i've primarily kept it fairly um commercial but i think uh comic books is a fascinating area and um would you would you mind talking through like how you would go about creating a logo for a comic book? Um, well, I also I, I do a lot of logos for for book jackets, for bands, for corporations, even. Okay, this could be really interesting. Then, so would you say, um, in terms of your process, are there any drastic differences when you're designing on a logo for a comic book versus designing a logo for, say, a band or a business? Yeah, well, there are similarities and there are differences. Um, the, uh, the conceptual approach is probably quite similar. Um, the contextual approach isn't, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, you, you've got you've got to ask yourself what the logo is trying to summarise, and if you can articulate what that is, whether it's the voice of the company or the character of the cartoon character, um, and if you can articulate that somehow in the design itself, that's what you're aiming for. Uh, where that sometimes becomes more fraught is if the client itself. Uh, doesn't know what that is or can't articulate that. So sometimes you're trying to dig into the essence of the character or find something unique about it that you can express. Um, What you don't want to do is end up by picking a font, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which um, a lot of logos seem to boil down to. Um, The main difference with comic book logos as opposed to even a band logo or a corporate logo for sure is the context and the context is generally on a very busy background on the cover of a comic 
And unless you're actually designing what's called the trade dress as well, which is the barcode to the, the publisher's logo, the whole, the credits, the whole logo, uh, sorry, the whole cover, quite often the logo itself is a free-floating item which has to work on any background whatsoever. So it will generally have to be, have some kind of outline or some kind of shape within which it sits just so it doesn't lose itself in a complex background whereas you put, you have a bit more control over a corporate logo you can specify background colors you can specify the fact that it should be some distance away from other elements that may be on the page uh, so there, there, there are those kind of practical concerns that are different but by and large, you're, 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 you're articulating the character, you're articulating the mood, you're articulating the attitude of the story of the art. Um, you're, you're, you're producing a sort of sigil that sums up what the project's about. And I think that works across the board. And I think the, the, the logos that are less successful are the ones which aren't really saying anything. Or they're saying something that is generic rather than specific does that make sense yeah it does so i mean um going back to um your actual process are you okay to like explain through how you actually go about creating a a, a logo because i i've seen a lot of your work and it feels very handmade um so i'm just curious to know like if uh like the steps that you actually take because uh for example uh in in my case i i typically um i do a lot of um sketchbook work and then um uh i i only develop like the the basic idea on on paper and um is it's in illustrator that i actually um you know really polish that logo so i'm curious to know um from uh your experience uh working on um, you know, comics and, and uh, other areas, if your actual physical process, like A to Z process, is different in any way? Um, it sounds similar. Um, for, me, for me, the sketching process is an ideas process. And as soon as I've cracked it, as soon as I know what the idea is, what the concept is, I'll, I'll go straight to Adobe Illustrator and I'll know by that time what it looks like. Um, I've done the thinking part. And so the working in Adobe Illustrator is much more of a technical exercise. It's to do with weight of line and balance of shape and counter and symmetry, all those kind of technical things. But by that time, I'll know what the logo looks like. Um, the, the sketches that I will do won't be particularly finished. I mean, they'll literally be little thumbnail drawings which will articulate the basics and that's it you know you wouldn't be able to show them to a client and they and they wouldn't be able to understand what it is that you're trying to do um but with a comic book logo i'll probably produce four five six seven ideas some of them may be variations on a single idea some of them might be completely different ideas it depends how well i think i've articulated what's needed if i produce eight or 10 variations on a design it's probably because i don't really know what it is that i'm doing and i'm hoping that i'll thrash it out and quite often from the client's point of view i think it's indicative of the fact that they haven't articulated very clearly what it is that we need and so the more i produce the more it's probably 
indicative of the fact that I haven't solved the problem clearly yet. Having said that, um, I'll, I'll quite often produce a design which I think is the perfect design and the client will fundamentally disagree and so we'll be back to square one. So uh, it doesn't always work that way. In fact, one of the nice things about this book, Logo A Go Go, that um, is going to be out in March, is the chance to show all the variations that got away. So the basic idea is is that on one side of a spread you have the final logo and on the other side you have sometimes up to 20, 30 designs that didn't make the cut, that will all explore different ideas. Maybe it was I didn't get the essence of the character or I missed something important that needed to be said in the logo. Uh, other times the client was an arse and just picked the wrong one, which always happens, um, sometimes happens. Uh, so it's an interesting, and then I talk about this case by per case, um, which I hope will be instructive for uh, students because a lot of these books on logos, they show you the final object and you don't really know how you got there. You don't really know the blind alleys that you went down. You don't really know what the process is. So I've tried to be as honest as I can about, you know, about the things that went right, but also about the things that went wrong. Uh, sometimes you learn more about the jobs that go magnificently <laughs> off the rails than you do about the ones that just sail through. So I've tried to present different examples of different jobs that progressed in different ways. There's no real one way, one working method that always works um you know i think you've just got to have the conversation with the client that is straightforward and articulate and gets to the nitty-gritty of what it's about i think quite often the logos that don't really work is where that conversation didn't happen and sometimes it's like getting blood out of a stone to get feedback other times I myself have completely misunderstood what the need of the logo is. Uh, but it's always a conversation between you and the client and you're trying to drill down into what the perfect solution would be. Mm -hmm. I know with your book, I'm I'm actually quite excited to see that because I, I think you are right, is that one of the problems with a uh, with quite a few books out there is that they do just show this... Um, finished polished piece and it can be quite misleading as to what the process was to get to that and uh, when when you do actually start to see um a lot of the sketchbook work which you know i've i've been lucky enough to see in my career simply by um you know constantly looking out on social media or searching on google you know you kind of have to dig for it so i'm quite excited to see what you've actually put in your book um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your book? I know you briefly covered it then, but I, I think now would be a fantastic uh, time to um, insert in this into the uh, conversation. Like, what, What's the reason why you put this book together and uh, what can we get out of it? Um, it's going to be published in March by Carrero Press, um, who I did a previous book called Custom Lettering of the 20s and 30s with, uh, which was the last in the trilogy of custom lettering collections uh, and they do a lot of books that focus on pop culture typography things like that so it was a, it was a really good fit for them um, 
it, I was amazed at how many logos I've actually done. Um, and if you include all the ones that didn't make the grade, it's thousands. Uh, the, the book itself is about 560 pages. And I, I haven't actually counted how many logos there are, but there are lots. Wow. <laughs> Not all of them are good. Um, you know, a lot of them are there to sort of show the process. So I'm not claiming that every single one is is an award winner. It's not. But then that was the point of the book. It was to show this process. Um, and so it's partly monograph. It's partly instructional manual. It's partly a kind of catalogue of my work up to this point in on the logo front, at least. Um, I mean, like I say, a lot of my work is illustration or mainstream graphic design or typography. So it doesn't really, it, it peripherally addresses some of that, uh, but it, it very much focuses on just the logos. It, it's called Logo A Go Go. Um, and it, as I say, it'll be out in March. Check it out. Mm-hmm. Sounds fantastic. It's something I'm quite excited to um, have a look through that. Now, you've worked on a lot of uh, very iconic um logos now and um has there been a particular uh favorite logo or one that might have some kind of interesting story that you might like to share with us oh there's so many um i think you don't really know how well a logo or how badly a logo is going to work until probably eight to ten years have passed and then you can look back (laughs) at it and see whether it's actually uh, it, it has worked or not. And what you don't want for a logo when you look back at it is to look old-fashioned. You want it to look as fresh as the day you designed it. You want it to still be uh, appropriate. And you don't... Well, uh, the logos that tend to get changed are the ones where it might have keyed into a current trend, but it didn't have anything deeper to say than that. It was superficial. And the one of the earliest logos I did, and I can't remember the exact date, but it was probably the late 80s, was the Forbidden Planet logo. Forbidden Planet being a chain of, British chain of, I think they're actually in the in the New York as well, chain of comic book shops, science fiction shops. And that logo, I think, has lasted quite well. Uh, it's still, I'm still happy with it. And... There are other logos. The the Batman and Robin logo I quite like. It has a kind of brash pop art uh, appeal, which I, I kind of pinned down quite well, I think. Um, but the the logos, my favourite logos, they tend to change. Um, there are when I was doing this book, there were certain logos that I remember at the time. Think being quite pleased with that, in retrospect, looked a bit superficial and then there were other ones which I hadn't looked at in donkey's ears or other ones that I hadn't even presented to the client which I actually thought had something going on for them so it was a sort of chance to go through the archives and sort of reassess um, a lot of these things that I hadn't looked at in a long time Uh, the nice thing about the Forbidden Planet logo is that um, as part of the payment uh, I was I was given a staff discount card, which um, has probably been worth more than the amount of money I spend on art books and comics and vinyl toys. Uh, Do you still have that? Pretty, <laughs> pretty good deal. Yeah, it's got a photograph on me that's now of me on it that's now about twenty years out of date. So the people at the till look at me slightly askew. But uh, yeah, that was uh, 
that was cool. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the one logo of yours that I know um, very well because um, growing up or even now, uh, Forbidden Planet is one of my favorite shops. Um, I mean, there's, there's, we got one here in London, one in uh, Manchester. I always like having a look around there. So um, I'm quite into uh, movies and comic books and stuff like that as yeah. well. Well, I think that because I was because I was passionate about the material, and it's this is what this is what I find so enjoyable about working on logos with writers whose work I love, with artists whose work I admire, um, on projects. Uh, you know, whether that be a new project or a repackaging of an old comic that's being collected. Um, the chance to just work with some of the the material that you, that I would be buying anyway. So it's a bit like designing stuff for me, which you know is the most fun part about what I do. I think I don't think I'd be very good at. I mean, I have done a lot of corporate stuff, but I, I find it very hard to get enthused about um, you know housing developments in Leeds and things mm-hmm. like that. As a new Batman comic is right up my street, so it's a kind of enthusiasm for the material that I think has kind of propelled me forward and, I, and kept me interested. I think a lot of people listening to this, uh, myself included, will find that quite inspiring. And um, I mean, obviously, it's something that everyone wants to do. They want to be working on something that really actually um, fascinates them. So, is, is there any advice that you can give uh, for actually finding those projects that? you are passionate about um well most of the most of the people who i know who work in say music design love music they're probably musicians on the side and so that love of the form feeds into the design that they're doing for that or say people who are working in the charitable sector they'll really be invested in uh, the work of the charities that they're doing the work for so it's that engagement it's not just a job it's a real you really want to make this work. You really want it to be good for the client and say what it needs to say. And I think that that you know that's what I try to bring to every job is that kind of passion. I think that there's a there's a slight downside to this is that you know there's obviously a lot of graphic design work which is not like that, and everyone does their fair share of turd polishing shall we say um in in a design point of view but um i think that even even when something even when a job comes in that's i don't know for an accountant or something like that there's a part of my brain that will sort of kick into gear and say how can i make this interesting and then i'll get all enthusiastic about it and then i'm away so it's 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 retaining that enthusiasm even for the jobs for which that enthusiasm is probably surplus to requirements. Um, I think that's how you keep it. You, you keep yourself engaged that way. Mm-hmm. I find it really interesting you say that because I, I used to work for a medical company and, um, you know, some of the products used to be basically tubes, you know, they were the pretty uninspiring things. And uh, we had a small team and uh, quite a few of them would always say, how come you always work, get to work on the cool stuff? And I think it's the same as you. I found something in it that I was passionate about and I was able to make a thing of it. So I think that's, that's fantastic advice. Yeah. No, I think there's, there's, quite often it's not the content of the job 
that dictates whether you can produce something interesting or not. It's the willingness of the client to embrace slightly novel solutions. And that's what you need. You need, you need, you need, well, here's another bizarre thing is that people ask me what the ideal client is. And the ideal client isn't necessarily the client who likes everything you do. Because I think that just makes you lazy. Um, the ideal client will give you quite a lot of pushback. And if you're getting quite a lot of pushback, you have to articulate what you're doing much more um, straightforwardly. And if you can say and you can show why it is the way it is and convince the client that that's the way it should be, that makes a strong logo. If you have a client who is 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 not particularly articulate or is not particularly rational or constructive you're kind of shooting a moving target so that you know is also bad but between being given enough rope to hang yourself and having the the kind of client who never really knows what they want between those two extremes there is the perfect sort of match of the articulate and engaged client who will push back and because they do you rise to the challenge and out of that comes your best work the clearest thinking the uh you know the purest solution that you can you can reach mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah it does i i can um um agree with that because a lot of my best work have been in those instances where the clients kind of question things and uh, push back. And uh, I mean, it's kind of working together, you know, it's not in the instances, instances where they totally hate it, but where they are challenging you. So I agree with that. I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who have been kind enough to sponsor this podcast and allow me to make it possible. FreshBooks makes it really easy to create and send invoices to your clients to make sure you get paid. There's no formatting and you can add your own logo and color scheme too to make sure that your invoices reflect your brand. Another cool feature is that you can actually see when your clients have seen your invoices too, so there's no more guessing. I'll also send automated late payment reminders too, saving you from any of those awkward conversations that no one ever wants to have. It was also recently redesigned from the ground up too, so now it looks absolutely beautiful. It's really easy to use too. So for me as a designer, that's something that matters and I'm sure it will to you too. If you're listening now and you've not yet tried FreshBooks for yourself, now is the time to do it because FreshBooks is offering you a free unrestricted 30-day trial, no credit card required. All you need to do is visit freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. Now let's get back to that interview. Now I know that that typography and uh, hand lettering has been um, quite an important aspect of your uh, work and I've noticed that you've got a real talent for um, kind of adding personality to uh, your typography. So I'm I'm curious to know, is there any advice that you can give uh, to the audience to help them create letters or fonts that um, 
uh, capture what a business or product is? Yeah, I do a lot of font design. I mean, I remember the early days of Fontographer, um, and I've always been a font nerd. Um, I used to collect letter set sheets and catalogues of uh, old hot metal type. I've still got a massive collection of these things, so I am very much a type nerd. And when uh, I started uh, using Fontographer to create fonts, it was just a pure pleasure to actually be able to use typefaces of my own design in my own work, which is by and large what I do now. Over the the years, I've built up a library, so there's pretty much anything, any kind of tone of voice which I might need. I can probably draw on something from the device fonts library for that. And if there isn't, that's probably a project that I should get into to produce that tone of voice. And I think that quite often the most successful fonts are the ones which which people will use because they say something that they need a a font to say. Um, so you might have identified a gap in the market if there's not a specific font that you would need for the project to have. But also all the type that is in the logos is 99% uh, of my own design and 99% drawn up specifically for the logo. There'll be the odd occasion when I might use a historical font for... Uh, you know, it's specific historical uh, atmosphere that it uh, produces. But by and large, I think if you can draw those characters from scratch, specifically and very much for comic book logos, uh, because you're very much sort of fitting them within the, the shapes of a bat logo or something like that, to to force an existing font into that, which some people do, doesn't really work so well um so yes it's all hand-drawn typography from scratch uh you know there'll be 30 40 iterations of it before i get it right uh i'll print them out i'll put them up across the wall and on, on the pin board across the other side of the studio and and look at them and then come in the next day and you can pretty much see where you you need to polish something or something isn't particularly balanced. So it's a it's a sort of honing process uh, that goes on there. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important aspect that uh, is probably worth talking about more. Is that I've noticed uh, like in the communities, uh, people will post just an icon and they like the um, the type part of the logo will almost be a second thought but um in my experience the the typography is actually the most important part um now you briefly um spoke about your process here are you able to talk through how you you know for a complete novice someone that hasn't done this before could you talk through how you go about um creating that and um, like if there's any resources that you would recommend to help them learn how to uh, create those letters correctly. Oh, you mean, you mean the letters that might be used? Yeah, like for, for a logo to actually create a custom typeface for a logo. Right. Um, you probably wouldn't create a custom typeface for a logo, but you might create a custom set of letters for a logo. Yeah. A, lot of the yeah. lo- a lot of the fonts that I have released uh did begin as logos and then you know if it looked like it had legs i would then extrapolate it out of the logo into a full alphabet and then maybe even into a full family that's how 
um, say Blackcurrant was designed uh, or some of the custom fonts, for example, uh, from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles logo that I did, there's a font uh, that develops out of that. Um, but as regards to the process, if you took something like, I don't know, uh, take, a, take a Batman logo, I will probably know either the writer or the artist, I'll certainly know the editor. And so we'll just have a phone conversation or maybe an email conversation where we'll talk about what the new comic is about. And that may involve uh, me reading the synopsis, maybe the script for the first two or three issues. There'll be general discussions about the kind of mood. You know, is this a, is this a dark, violent uh, tale of revenge? Is it, uh, you know, a psychedelic outer space adventure involving multi-universal drug use or something like that. <laughs> These are all examples of things that I have actually designed. Um, and so you're trying to you're trying to articulate that in a logo somehow and you'll have this conversation and you'll probably talk about certain uh, touch points, if you like, in terms of historical styles that may or may not be suitable. Generally... Uh, I try not to recreate styles from the past. I mean, it does happen, and people do request this, and, and sometimes some of my logos are described as being vintage or retro, And uh, but I, I kind of try and shy away from that because you're in the business of recreating something rather than creating something new, which I always think is the best way to go. So, but having had that conversation, I'll probably then, uh, you know, I'll doodle in one of my little moleskin books, but those will literally be drawn in biro, tiny little two or three centimetre wide doodles until I've figured out what the idea is. That's what I'm after. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's the way in, the idea. I mean, what, what type of thing are you actually doodling, just so I understand? Are you doing specific letters or are you just uh, drawing the whole uh, word? Um, yeah, it can be the whole world. Yes, it would be the whole thing, and it would be, for example, if it has, to, if it had, to, if it had to be a character that was, I don't know. Again, let's take Batman for example. You know, Batman has certain characteristics. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to articulate, you know, this vengeful figure of the night, typographically. So you're not looking at say, the shape of a crossbar on a G, which is a conversation I got into with one client recently. And I was saying, yes, we can fix that. That's not relevant. Can you? Can we talk about the overall concept? But they were fixated about this crossbar on the G for some reason. So you're not talking about that. And that's primarily why these um, thumbnails are so so loose. You know, you're, you're just trying to visualise how you might articulate this concept and that concept like i say might be make it dark make it light make it fun make it gritty you know there'll be adjectival descriptors of what the project is about sometimes very very loose ones very non-specific ones and then when i feel like i've got a handle on that then i'll start drawing character shapes and in illustrator and at that point it's very much a kind of slow sculpted refinement where i'll put the basics down and then you know finesse it and maybe bin it maybe come up with something else in the process that i think is a 
more fruitful avenue to pursue. It's very much all, the looser you can keep it, the more up in the air you can keep it at this stage, the better, which I think is why using existing fonts is always a bad way to start these things because they have very specific characters and so you're you're moving too far down the process too quickly it's a bit like i, I mean i still do a lot of life drawing i did a book on on um a book of burlesque portraits a couple of years ago that image comics published a series of illustrations on a burlesque theme and a lot of these were drawn from life and i one of the reasons that i started doing this it didn't it, i didn't intend it to actually be a published book when I started it was just to get back to the kind of art school mentality of there there's the model that you've got a piece of charcoal or whatever it may be and you haven't got an undo button so you just you've got to think about what you're doing and the way I work the way I, I was taught to work um, when you're doing a life drawing is you get the basics down first so you have a line where the head goes you have a line where the hips go you have another line which might describe the curve of the spine. You might plot where the feet are, and then you might draw the legs in, and maybe the arms, and then you'll look at it, and then you'll think, well, is that right? Is that stance right? And then you'll change it if it isn't. And only then do you start putting pressure on the bones. Only then do you get into where the muscles go and uh, the expression on the face, for example, uh, how the hair might fall. And only then, after you've done that, do you start thinking about the lighting and the modelling and things like that. So the same thing applies when you're doing a logo. You're, you, you're, the things that you're trying to articulate to begin with are nothing to do with the shape of a serif or the slant of, a, of an italic or anything like that. Those, those, are, those, those are sort of end point decisions. What you're trying to do is you're trying to actually get you're trying to get something that says what you need it to say. You know, someone's got to look at that and say, yes, that is grim and gritty. That is light and fun. That is uh, corporate and reliable and conservative. You know, that is, uh, you know, fuck off punk rock, you know, in your face or whatever it might be. So you're trying to articulate these very, very almost abstract themes to begin with. And only then do you get into, um, you know, the mechanics of the, the letters and things like that. And, and when, you get into, when you get into that part of it, then you begin to look at the consistency of counters, consistency of serifs, whether you can reflect certain parts of the letters to create a symmetry. I mean, in quite a few of the Batman logos I've done, for example, you get all these kind of graphic gifts, as I call them, in certain uh, words. So for in Batman, for example, you have an, the second and the second last letter are both A's, and you can do things with that. You can have them... It suggests a reflective symmetry that I've worked into the shape of the bat in many occasions, for example. So you get all these, you get all these geometric graphic... Um, uh, aspects of, of logo design that you can use, that you can play with, that come out of the shapes of the letters that you happen to be using. Uh, so you then get into that, having, having dealt with the conceptual part of it, you then get into the geometric part of it, uh, which is quite often the more fun part because you've kind of cracked the difficult part and you're now into the kind of noodling, which is, you know, you can sort of put the music on and relax a bit and and you're making aesthetic decisions rather than much more difficult intellectual decisions. 
And at that point, <clears throat> uh, you'll probably send some examples to the client to get feedback. It'll be it'll be at a point where someone who's probably a little less visually acute will be able to understand what it is that you're trying to do. They still won't be completely polished, but they'll articulate what it is that you're saying. And at that point, you'll probably have a conversation with the client and incorporate their feedback. And that feedback can be something relatively uh, light, you know, a polish here, something that doesn't make sense. Maybe the logo doesn't read very well. Maybe there's a letter that isn't particularly clear. Or it could be a conceptual comment, comment. You know, it doesn't say what we need it to say in terms of the character of the character that this is for. Um, and then the last part of the process is once that, once you're all on the same page and all of those kind of, all of those problems have been solved, you then deliver the final artwork. And at that point, you really go in very close and you make sure that all the line weights match, that everything is ele elegantly constructed from a technical point of view. Um, I'll produce different colorways. So I might produce 10, 15 different colorways of a logo, especially for a comic, uh, just to illustrate how the, the different elements of it can be colored up in different ways. Because quite often with a comic book, or the best way for a comic book logo to gel well on the cover is if the colours in the logo are lifted from the artwork. And with an ongoing title, a monthly title, that is the job of the in-house designer. So if I can make the in-house designer's job as easy as possible by showing them how this logo might work, um, it helps them along. So quite often, to see whether a logo is working well, I'll put it in context on... Uh, by that time... Uh, quite often we'll have cover art in so we can see what it looks like in situ which is always very helpful uh, sometimes you don't have cover art in so you'll use a generic piece by the artist who is drawing the cover um, just to sort of just to get a vibe of, of how the thing is coming together um, and then you deliver the artwork you might deliver like I say several different colorways uh, a black and white version uh, a screen, uh, a web safe version, uh, and hopefully that's job done. Mm -hmm. There's one part I'd I'd be curious to know a little bit more about. Like you mentioned that you're presenting like part complete work. What is it you're actually presenting at that point? Is it um, like vector files? But yes. You know, it's just not completely polished down. Yes. There'll be. I mean, it depends how. It depends what the relationship with the client is. I mean, if there's someone who I've worked for for 10, 15 years, uh, you develop a good relationship where they can read. They won't obsess over a technical aspect that they know you're going to fix later because that's not what we're talking about at this early stage. Um, whereas a less experienced, experienced, experienced client will not be able to see past the uh, the surface and they will tend to obsess over uh, details which aren't relevant to the idea at hand that early on that you're trying to solve. Uh, and so you have to sort of educate the client not to do that. Uh, but yes, there will be vector artwork at that stage. Um, you know, maybe not the most finished vector artwork, but most of the people who I'm dealing with are art directors. So they're designers themselves. They're aware of the process. So they understand Okay, that makes sense because I've I've had the experience in the past where um, I've not felt comfortable to 
um, present part complete work. Um, I always prefer to kind of like uh, get it pretty finished and you know present it kind of in situ as you you did at the end of the process that's the point that i've been um sharing the clients so i find that interesting i think yes i think the the plus on that of that approach is that it's as polished as and convincing as you can make it the downside of that approach is that if you if you haven't got it right you've actually invested quite a lot of work in that and what you want is to have the, the the base level conceptual conversations early on so that you don't do that, so you don't go down the wrong path. And with 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 most of the logos that I do, I if 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 that if we're on the same page conceptually, maybe I'll do two or three variations, maybe four tops, and we're there. There have been painful logo designs, and I talk about this in the book, where I've been through 80, 90, 100 logos, and you're, you're then you know that it becomes, you're just throwing stuff at the wall to see what'll stick in the end, because the client just doesn't know what they're talking about. And it's, it, it's sort of trying to navigate those spaces that, uh, uh, you know that that is that is the job of the graphic designer, and so I, I would I would advise against going too polished too early, but that relies upon you having a client who isn't impressed by polish and who understands that what we're talking about here is not the polish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I'm curious to know, um, I you're working on a lot of very visual work and um, I assume that, you know, you need to keep inspired by um, imagery. So I'm curious to to know, like, where do you look for inspiration? Well, I think it, it becomes harder as you get older, to be honest. And I think that when you're starting out when you're at art college there are so many people who inspire you and that that kind of sponge-like ability to absorb everything and anything is something that I try and retain but when you become busier you're so busy producing that sometimes you don't have the time to to relax and absolutely and absorb new new ideas, new material, new new things. So the stuff that I come across that I <laughs> that inspires me now, te- I, it tends to be accidental. It tends to be some poster that I walk past in the street, or a friend of mine who sends me a book that they'll think I'll be interested in. But, but it's what does amaze me is it's still possible to find illustrators, designers architects, you name it, who do really fire me up again with enthusiasm. Um, you know, there are certain people who, uh, and, and also because we work in a globalised community now, so you're looking at comic artists that are coming out of China. There's some amazing artists. You know, Benjamin, for example, his use of colour is just incredible. And also the tools are evolving, so that people are using... Uh, you know, lighting techniques and uh, use of colour that just would not be possible before. So there's always something new, there's always something fresh, there's always something to keep you enthusiastic. There's always something that 
makes you think, oh, I've got to, I've got to keep on my toes here. The, you know, these guys are good. I, you know, I can't kick back and relax. I've got to, you know, keep trying. I can't be lazy. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many uh, new talented uh, designers emerging e- each day, um, especially now that like design education is fairly easy to find online. And uh, there's uh, like social media platforms so that they can reach clients. So you really do need to keep um, progressing forward in this industry. But I mean, um, you know, we, I, I, I personally love graphic design, so I have no uh, issue with that. Now, that actually leads on uh, quite nicely to uh, another question I, I have for you. And that's, uh, what is it that, that fascinates you so much about logo design and, and graphic design in general? I think what's, uh, I mean, what fascinates me about logo design is that um, to begin with, um, I would come across logos, uh, f- and I think it all begins when you're a kid. I mean, almost anybody I know who's a musician or a writer, they had some collision with the form, whatever the form that was their passion quite early on. And I remember um, getting a badge which had the Star Trek logo on, you know, the triangular logo, and being fascinated by that. And I remember having a um, – there was a Jerry Anson show called UFO – and the logo for that was a man with a shadow. And then next to that, SHADO, the Supreme Headquarters Alien Defense Organization. I thought this was fantastic. And they were like, um, not like gang signs, or they're like little sigils, all magical things that some think, that some this, uh, you know, futurist organization up. And, um, I think that's where the fascination came from. They were they were kind of ways into something bigger than what they were, and um, I, I think sort of on a broader um, sense, what you're doing when you're doing graphic design is you're manipulating symbols, and uh, some of the symbols that graphic designers manipulate are very obvious symbols, like the alphabet or um, you know a certain font might have a certain. Uh, historical resonance so you know a serif font will look a certain way and a sans serif font will have a different tone of voice so there are certain ways that we as graphic designers manipulate these um, tools that we have um, but, then, but then there's a deeper level I mean if you're creating a logo you're aware of all of this historical baggage that you're bringing to bear uh, but you're also dealing with line and shape and colour in its most uh, sort of elemental, platonic way. And I know this sounds sort of vaguely pretentious and almost metaphysical, but it's, I think it's true. I think there are certain colours will have certain uh, emotive effects, just as uh, certain chords on a piano will sound harmonious or disharmonious or uplifting or melancholy. Um, you know, why is that? Why does that happen? I think there's, it's to do with some resonance in our you know, mathematical nature of human beings, the way we're made, and uh, colour and shape and sound uh, and how they affect us. So there is that kind of um, level to design that I think that a lot of designers are sort of aware of, some of them more explicitly than others. Um, of course, when you're dealing with clients, you, you tend not to talk about this because you'll frighten them off. 
So, you know, if there's a certain color combination that you think works very well, you probably wouldn't get into a metaphysical discussion about why it works well. You would probably just tell them that it uh, represents their brand very well or something like that, something that sounds a bit more practical. But um, it's a bit like listening to a musician trying to explain what it is about music that they fundamentally respond to. And once you've stripped away what the lyrics mean, once you've stripped away the cultural uh, reference that they may be using in their music, underneath all of this is the, the raw material of sound, or in the case of graphic design, the raw material of our visual uh, experience. And... I think that sort of graphic design is quite pure in that way. You know, we're, we're very much... I mean, the, the artists that I respond to that um, I like are very much the uh, the modernists, you know, the Dada, Cubism, uh, Mondrian, De Chirico, Picasso, obviously. Um, and so the, the, the graphic designers that I respond to are the ones who are sort of very much interested in this exploration of of colour and shape and form for its own sake, if that makes sense. Now, um, I must sort of leaven this by saying that there are certain graphic designers who will just be making shapes and there won't be any conceptual content to it. It won't mean anything. It'll, it'll just be pretty shapes. And I'm not for one minute um, talking about that, you know, the kind of contentless graphic design that... that is the kind of stuff that ends up by looking great today and then awful, you know, it's, it's a bit like wearing flares and then realising what a mistake you've made. So they tend, that, that, that just dealing with what things look like um, without dealing what they mean, uh, what they articulate, uh, can be quite um, superficial on its own but there is this kind of underlying language that we all speak to some we all have some degree of fluency in uh, and I think again music is a good analogy you don't have to be a musician to love music you don't have to know how to play an instrument to be moved by music and the very fact that music can speak to uh, everyone from someone who might have studied it for 15 years to someone who, and you know, an inarticulate Borstal boy from the arse end of nowhere will still have a favourite band that will mean something to them. Now, if we can make design or art, and I definitely think that design is part of art, part, you know, they overlap in a very big way. Um, if we can do that, that will communicate as powerfully as music manages to, um, we'll have done something amazing, which I, uh, you know, the graphic design that I tend to do, um, it, it has a sort of very pop culture, pop aesthetic to it. And that's not primarily because uh, it's for pop, pop, popular, um, I'm using the the phrase in the way it's used in music or in art, pop art, pop music. Um, I think this is something that if you can produce something that's on the one hand is uh, approachable and people can engage with without being graphic designers, without having studied art, it's not 
dense. It's not up its own arse. It doesn't use jargon that people who are outside of the field are bemused by. It, it's approachable. It's open. But at the same time, it's not shallow. It's, it has depth. It has meaning. It has universality. That's what I call the kind of pop aesthetic. I think, you know, it's what uh, you know, the Beatles do or ABBA do um, as, and Shostakovich doesn't. Uh, you know, and I very much want my work to fit that criteria. I want it to be universal and talk to everyone, or well, not everyone, but you know, talk to a broad spectrum of people. I don't want it to be. I don't want it to be designed for other designers because I think that's you know, music for other musicians is is quite often pointless technical noodling. And the graphic design equivalent of, of design for designers is pointless technical noodling. If you're sitting around admiring the kerning, then you're not talking about the ideas that are, the kerning might articulate, which is not to say that the kerning shouldn't be perfect. Of course it should, but the technical aspects of it are not primarily what it is about. The articulation of the idea is essential and must be of the highest standard, but there must be an idea to articulate. And so it's, it's that sort of slightly more metaphysical side of visual culture that really interests me and trying to articulate that through the work, not just so others can understand it, but also so you can understand it because in the process of, of exploring it, of articulating it, it becomes clearer to you how this works. So um, I, I kind of summed up my thinking on this in a book called Culture, Ideas Can Be Dangerous, which was published about four or five years ago. And it deals with a lot of stuff, not just visual culture, but um, semiotics and uh, consciousness, meaning, things like this. So I think that th this is what sort of underpins my sort of interest um, across the board. So, you know, graphic design, illustration, writing, they all have this at at a you know at, at a ground state beneath all this i think this is what's going on and in fact i've uh, i've written a novel which i know is probably one of, again one of the most pretentious things that you can do and uh, i make no claims to it being a great novel but it's going to come out this year and it's basically me trying to use typography and design logo design type design um in an authored way. So different characters in this novel have different fonts that I've designed specifically for their tone of voice. Um, I, I reference uh, historical fonts and historical types of design, say uh, like a Victorian bill poster with lots of vernacular type or a uh, sort of words in freedom, sort of Dada prose poem. So there are, I reference sort of historical types, but I'm also trying to do something new with it. So it's this way of injecting a kind of authorial voice into your design, which um, I think a lot of designers uh, are very passionate about doing. You know, they want to not just articulate their clients' needs, but to articulate their own interests and needs as well. And quite often there's a clash between these. There's a sort of an ill fit between what an illustrator might want to do and what a client might want an illustrator to do. So... Again, going back to the advice I was giving about not being a prima donna, you have to sort of tread that carefully. But I think that because I've come from comics, and comics are very authorial in that they're not servicing something else other than themselves. So if you're designing, if you're... Uh, 
doing an illustration for an article in a magazine, you're servicing the article in the magazine. You, uh, you might create a, the most beautiful illustration that very well articulates the idea, but it won't be your idea. It'll be the idea in the article. If you're designing a, uh, a product, whether that be a, I don't know, a packet of biscuits for Tesco's or something like that, it's a packet of biscuits for Tesco's. That is what you are fundamentally at base articulating. And I think that what we've got to do is create a space where what we are, t are articulating is more authorial. So when you're, when you're doing a comic, and this is why comics are so fantastic, is that you are, you're thinking, what is the, when you sit down with a writer, or if you are a writer artist, as some people are, um, your, your first question is, what, do I, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to articulate? And then the style comes out of that. The story comes out of that. So you, you're creating it from, from the bottom up rather than being given something that you can then polish or, or, or work with. And it's finding that authorial space that I think a lot of graphic designers are moving towards in the same way that musicians have always had this authorial voice. You know, if you're a musician and you're writing jingles for adverts, that's very different from writing your own album where you're articulating your own thoughts. And unfortunately, 99% of graphic design is writing jingles. It's that. It's applying yourself to articulating a client's needs rather than your own needs. So this novel is an attempt to bring what I've learned in graphic design and type design and how that can be used to, uh, to tell a story um, and write the content myself. So I'm not just decorating someone else's story, I'm actually writing the story as well. Now, it may be a bunch of pretentious nonsense, but uh, at least I've had a go. It sounds very much like a passion project for you. Yeah, but I think that most, uh, I think maybe most people who are graphic designers are very passionate about what they work and, and, and about their work, and the same way that musicians are writers are and I think that you mustn't lose that passion and I, I remember when I was working in comic when I was drawing comics and writing comics and working with other writers and when I was working with writers it was very much a collaborative um, process you know we would discuss what we were going to do and then you would divvy up the work and the writer would write the script and then you would draw that script but Prior to that, you would very much talk about what it was that you were, you were trying to do. Um, and that is the bit that's missing from a lot of um, coalface commercial graphic design, unfortunately. Um, so it's creating that space. And if, and if it's possible to create work in the same way that comics are, the, you, you buy a comic because you want to read the comic. The comic is not there as an ancillary to selling you some other product. It's not there to sell you a TV or a, uh, you know, or food or some, some other thing. You're buying it because you want to read that story and look at that art. And that is what graphic design doesn't have. So this is, this is my attempt to do that. It's, it, I've called it a novel, comma, graphic, obviously in a pun on graphic novel. Um, so it's it's my attempt to find an authorial space for graphic designers to create things out of. It's, it's create it's creating a space for graphic designers to also be authors. Mm -hmm. Sounds interesting, and uh, I'm definitely gonna keep an eye out for that. When does that come out? 
It'll come out this year. Um, it's uh, my agent has it with a couple of publishers, so we're in, in the pro. Nothing's been signed yet, so um, it's in the process of being negotiated. Okay, something to keep an eye out for. And what I will do is um, I'll I'll update the show notes for this episode. So if anyone does listen to this in the future, that will actually be in the show notes for this as well. Okay, I've got one last question for you uh, to wrap this up. Now, I know that you've achieved um, so much in your uh, career so far. Um, so, so for those just starting out, is there any advice that you can uh, give to help them to achieve success of their own? Uh, you mean generally or? Yeah, I mean, um, what I normally like to do with the podcast is to end with some kind of tip. Um, I've done a lot of logo design tips, but I, I think it would be useful to know, like, is there anything in your career that you've, you've learned that you wish that you knew when you were younger? That's probably a better way of asking that question. Yeah. Um, I think there are, okay, there are many kinds of clients. There are the kind of clients that will turn into lifelong friends and with whom you'll collaborate to do your best work. There are complete chances who will rip you off. There are, there are people who will pay you enormous amounts of money for lame design because lame design is what they want. And I think when you begin, you don't, you don't know how to differentiate between these people. And quite often, they're the same person. So you'll have this fantastic client who will never pay you. You'll have someone who inspires you to do your best work, and then it never gets printed. So it's navigating this. The design is only half the job. It's getting the design out there in as uncompromised a version as in a, in a as idealized a version, as pure a version as you possibly can. And that involves a lot of uh, social skills, I guess, that certainly I didn't have when I came out of art college. I think that what I would do is just dig my heels in and stick my bottom lip out and refuse to change anything, which doesn't solve the client's needs and it doesn't get your work published. It's, it, it's, um, it's a lose-lose scenario to do that. So I think that if I had any advice, it would be that you learn any you learn you probably learn more from the jobs that go horribly wrong than the ones that sail through because those are the ones where you learn how to navigate those awkward spaces where the communication is broken down or there's been a misunderstanding or all, all this non <laughs> non design part of design. Um, which is not to say that you should flatter your clients. I think that you should you should give as as good as they give, which is why I was mentioning earlier about how the ideal clients are not afraid to give pushback. And they don't balk when you give them pushback either, as long as you're both aiming for the to get the best job you possibly can, because that's what you both want. You know, you that's good for them, that's good for you. So you know, navigate that space as best you can. Um, be articulate, be charming. Don't be a pushover, but don't be a prima donna. Um, that would be my non-design <laughs> advice for a designer. No, I think that's really good advice. And uh, I, I think everyone uh, definitely will um, take that on board, whether they like it or not. You know, it's something that you end up having to learn one way or another. Now, Ryan, uh, I just want to say thank you um, so much for 
uh, being on the podcast. Um, it's been a really fascinating conversation. So, um, yeah, again, thank you very much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Another amazing episode. Ryan, thank you so much for being an incredible guest. I think everyone uh, who's listened to this has got so much value out of this. Now, if you want to learn more about Ryan Hughes, make sure to check out his website, devicefonts.co.uk. And also be sure to check out that the book of his Logo Agogo, which is one that I'm really excited about myself. Now, I'll be sure to add links to um, Ryan's uh, social media and websites and books and so on that that we've mentioned in this episode in the show notes. And you can find that at logogeek.uk forward slash 2.9. Now, if you want to talk about this episode with uh, myself and over 3,500 other logo designers from around the world, make sure that you join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. And you can find that by visiting logogeek.uk forward slash community. Now we have discussions on a daily basis around logo design, branding, business. Uh, people tend to ask for advice, feedback and so on. You know, we, got a, we have a lot of valuable conversations in there. We also have live sessions on uh, the occasional Thursday where I'll invite community members to do a live session with the group where they share some uh, knowledge of their choice and community members can ask questions and interact with that and um, I mean we've been doing that for a few weeks now and it's been a lot of fun uh, so I plan to keep doing that so if you're listening to this and you're not part of the community I'd love to see you there and I'd love for you to get involved in this as well again if you want to find that it's at logogeek.uk forward slash community Anyway, thanks so much for listening. With so many podcasts out there, I'm totally blown away by the amount of people that are listening to this. So I'm so thankful that you spent the time to listen and I I really appreciate you um, being part of this. So guys, I'll see you next time.